Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, the latest on Governor Dayton in the legislature's lawsuit, a new assessment of child care in Minnesota, and the Twins celebrate the 1987 World Series team at Target Field. But first, an officer-involved shooting in Minneapolis sparks worldwide interest and leaves more questions than answers for many, including grieving family and friends, city officials, investigators, and the community. Our hearts are broken, and we are utterly devastated by the loss of Justine. Whatever the story is, this is an awful and tragic situation that is baffling to many, and everyone shares the same questions. What happened. Soon after the shooting, the BCA released a few details. A woman had been shot by an officer in South Minneapolis. The officer's body cameras had not been turned on and there was no squad video of the incident. Minneapolis Mayor Betsy Hodges says she was deeply disturbed by the incident and addressed the lack of video. I share the same questions other people have about why we don't have body cam footage of it and I hope to get answers to that in the days coming. The victim was identified as 40-year-old Justine Damon, a yoga instructor and life coach from Australia who'd moved to the U.S. just a couple years ago. Damon had called 911 to report a possible assault near her home. When officers arrived, she approached the driver's side door and was shot by the officer on the passenger side, Officer Mohammed Noor. On Monday, Damon's fiancé, Don, surrounded by family and supportive neighbors, spoke to reporters. We've lost the dearest of people and we are desperate for information. Piecing together Justine's last moments before the homicide would be a small comfort as we grieve this tragedy. Neighbor and activist Bethany Bradley had been offering support to the Damon family and said she was feeling a mix of emotions, including sadness and anger. We need justice, and that's what we're calling for. We're so tired of people dying at the hands of the police. The attorney representing Officer Noor put out a statement saying the officer extended his condolences to the family and anyone else who'd been touched by this event. Then on Tuesday, the BCA released more information about the shooting. The driver of the squad car, Officer Matthew Herity, told investigators he'd been startled by a loud sound just prior to Justine Damon coming up to his window and right before she was shot in the abdomen by Officer Noor. The BCA also reported that Noor had declined to answer investigators' questions about the shooting. Of that, Mayor Betsy Hodges said, I wish that he would because, you know, he, he has a story to tell that no one else can tell. But, you know, I share the frustration of the community at not knowing things we desperately wish that we knew. With the investigation ongoing, many are still seeking those answers as friends and family grieve the loss of Justine Damon, who was engaged to be married next month. Minnesota Matters will return after this. Adopt U.S. Kids presents Multiple Choice Parenting. Your daughter just had her first breakup. Do you A, put yourself in her shoes? How could he do this to you? And for Sheila, she, she has split ends. B, console her. Oh, sweetie, this is going to happen a lot. Four, maybe five more times before you get married. C, take charge. Got to get this all straightened out. Keep a little talking to, man to man, mano a mano. Hey, Steve. Is now a good time? No? Okay, no problem. Bye. Or D, help her find a new boyfriend. I know a great place to meet boys. The internet. Nice, single boys. Never mind. 
How about some ice cream? As a parent, there are no perfect answers. But you don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. Thousands of teens in foster care will love you just the same. For more information on how you can adopt, visit AdoptUSKids.org. A public service announcement from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, AdoptUSKids, and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. A judge in Ramsey County this week struck down Governor Dayton's vetoes of funding for the Minnesota legislature, and the governor instructed his attorney to appeal the case to the Minnesota Supreme Court. MNN's Bill Werner has been covering the story as it unfolded from the end of the legislative session. Scott, Dayton and Republicans could not get a budget deal wrapped up before the regular session clock ran out in the third week of May, and this legal dispute began during the special session that the governor called immediately after. Republicans put what they called an insurance policy in a tax cut bill to make sure Dayton signed it. If he didn't, operating funds for the Minnesota Department of Revenue, which collects taxes for the state, would have ended on July 1st. This move infuriated the governor, who signed the tax cut bill, but also line-item vetoed operating funds for the legislature, effective July 1st. It's unfortunate that your last-minute legislative treachery has left me no other option. Republican House Speaker Kurt Dowd responded. Frankly, uh, in hindsight, it was the right decision to put that provision in the bill. Because of the governor's actions, I can only conclude uh, that the governor was likely not to sign the tax bill. Dayton told Republicans he'd call a special session to restore funding for the House and Senate only if they rescinded several items that both sides had just agreed on. Reductions in the tobacco tax, business taxes, and taxes on wealthy estates also repeal newly enacted changes to teacher licensing laws and allow illegal immigrants to obtain driver's licenses in Minnesota. House Speaker Kurt Dowd's response? He won't fund the legislature unless we agree to reverse things that he specifically, from his lips to my ears, agreed to through negotiations. That means that the governor is the one that can't keep his word. Republicans threatened to sue Dayton, alleging he violated the separation of powers article in the Minnesota Constitution. I don't know how he can possibly defund the people's voice the legislative branches and say that you cannot uh, function. Senate Majority Leader Paul Gazelka. Republicans filed suit. Both sides continued talking, though. But after several meetings, it became clear that the dispute would end up in court. I've talked with Senator Gazelka. I've talked with uh, Representative Hortman. I've talked with uh, Senator Bach. Not as a group, but there's nothing at this point shows a way forward along the lines of what I've outlined. House Speaker Kurt Dowd was not on the governor's list. Um, I guess I'd say it has significance, yes. Both sides went to court, and the judge granted their request to extend funding for the legislature through October 1st, even as he considered Republicans' request to declare Dayton's vetoes unconstitutional. Republicans' attorney Doug Kelly argued in court that Dayton violated the Constitution because he cut funding to coerce the legislature into reversing tax cuts, not because he objects to the funding in and of itself. This is, I am going to reach across and I'm going to obliterate you in order to have a better negotiating position going forward. The governor's attorney, Sam Hansen, responded the legislature would not be obliterated. They're not put out of business because they have this constitutional right to get their core critical functions funded by judicial order. The judge took that case under advisement, and Republicans were so confident of a win that they didn't even talk with the governor. I think that the judge, in his initial decision, uh, kind of forecasted what he's thinking and said, that you know the public is entitled to a functioning legislative branch and you know we hope that he will issue a, a swift and firm decision in our favor the governor remained confident that he would prevail the constitution signed this power of line item veto to me 
It assigned to the legislature the authority to set budgets, to cut off budgets, uh, not to fund agencies, as, uh, as they've also done, done to the courts. But this week, Judge John Guthman sided with Republicans, writing in his ruling that the governor, quote, improperly used his line-item veto authority to gain a repeal or modification of unrelated policy legislation by effectively eliminating a co-equal branch of government. Therefore, under the unique and limited circumstances of this case, the governor's line-item veto of the legislature's appropriations offended the separation of powers clause of the Minnesota Constitution. They, the vetoes, are null and void, unquote. Shortly after, the governor announced he's appealing the case to the Minnesota Supreme Court. Dayton said earlier, Both sides recognize that this is only a matter that should be decided for the sake of Minnesota for now and for the future by the Minnesota Supreme Court. House Speaker Republican Kurt Dowd asked the governor to accept the district court's decision. I think the governor uh, did not have a strong case uh, from the very beginning. This is the sort of thing they teach in law school to new attorneys as an example of something being unconstitutional. Senate Republican Majority Leader Paul Gazelka also asked Dayton to reconsider. You can save the state some money and attorney fees, and you know because it was such a clear-cut decision, I still hope that we can move on and, you know, start uh, building the bridge back and working towards next year's session. Well, Scott, we will have to see how well the two sides work together after all this legal wrangling is over. Bill, could that have ramifications in the coming legislative session? Well, it certainly could, but I think what will probably define relations between Dayton and Republicans more than the outcome of a lawsuit is House Speaker Kurt Doubt's political aspirations. If he decides to run for governor, as many speculate he will... Doubt will want to further emphasize differences between himself and Dayton and thereby score as many points against the governor as he can before the state endorsing convention next summer, where he will probably face multiple opponents from his own party. And what fallout could there be from any decision by the Minnesota Supreme Court? Well, if the high court upholds the lower court's ruling in Republicans' favor, things are pretty much status quo. The legislature is funded. Pressure on Republicans to renegotiate tax cuts is removed. But if the Supreme Court rules in Dayton's favor, then not only are Republicans basically forced back to the bargaining table over this issue of tax cuts and other issues, but Dayton and future governors' power during budget or any negotiations is significantly expanded. If a governor doesn't like what he or she gets, then they can cut off funding for the legislature. But many analysts don't think the high court would allow that to happen. Scott? Thank you, Bill. Minnesota Matters returns after this. It's Thursday night, and you're grabbing drinks with some friends. Started off with a pitcher for the table, which quickly becomes two. There's pool. And there's the photo booth. All right, everybody squeeze in. Say cheese. Followed naturally by an order of wings. And another. Can we get some extra ranch sauce? Then there's the ceremonial nightcap. So what are we doing this weekend? And lastly, it's back to the car, which, if you're buzzed... ...could be the most expensive night of your life. Getting pulled over for buzz driving could cost you around $10,000 in fines, legal fees, and increased insurance rates. Nothing kills a buzz like getting pulled over for buzz driving, because buzz driving is drunk driving. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. We asked kids what it took to be a dad. This is what they had to say. A father is always present. I mean, what, father, what real father figure can you have if they're not there? 
In order to be a good dad, you need to love love your son. You need to put gas in your car so you don't break down in the middle of nowhere. And you need to make some breakfast. Yep. I mean, just to maybe um, play, like, a board game with me or to just stay home and play um, some video games with me. Just to do, like, that one little thing is what I really look forward to. I'm not asking him to be a perfect dad, but he should try. He's just a constant force in my life. There's no other type of love like a dad's love because it's not comparable to anything else. Take time to be a dad today. Call 877-4DAD411 or visit fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. It appears Minnesota is facing a widespread child care center shortage. MNN's Tasha Radel has more. That's right, Scott. Across the state, the number of providers is declining from 12,449 licensed child care providers in 2012 to 10,599 in 2016, making it difficult for families to find quality care. Joining me now is Minnesota Department of Human Services Commissioner Jim Koppel. Jim, I understand you were in Franklin in southwestern Minnesota's Renville County this week visiting the Cedar Mountain Cougar Child Care Center, which was built through a community partnership to help address the child care shortage. Can you tell us a little bit about the center? Very small town with just a few providers, and of the few providers they had, one by one they were going out of business just for any number of reasons. And the city needed to, well, decided to take on the issue of trying to fix the child care situation because from an employer vantage point as well as just a civic vantage point and an educational vantage point, something had to happen. So the city, the school district, and Franklin Industries, which was created, created a Franklin Development Corporation, they actually built an 8,000-foot building uh, which houses a child care center as well as a community gathering building. And as a result of that, they now have been able to maybe not serve all of the needs of child care in the community, but they have more capacity than they ever have had to serve child care needs of the families in Franklin. And what's so exciting about this is it's really a model. We have a disappearing family child care system in greater Minnesota. So in small towns all across Minnesota, um, people who were in the child care business for any variety of reasons out of their homes uh, are either retiring or their kids have grown and they're no longer interested in doing it. And there's this huge child care shortage uh, from a provider vantage point. So families who are working uh, have difficulty finding child care. This is a great example of a collaboration between a school district school district, uh, the city, and business to say, how can we build something that serves all of us better? You talked a little bit about this facility becoming a blueprint or model for others around the state. Are you seeing more communities interested in exploring this type of community partnership? There's a great deal of interest. Um, they, all across Minnesota, there have been attempts, and in some cases, uh, some larger companies have taken on that responsibility of actually addressing, a, you know, building a child care center, but it might only be for their employees. Uh, so what, what this is an example of is really a collaborative partnership where all families in the city 
or in a, in a geographic area are going to have a chance to be served and, and be supported as they work, and their children are going to be in a good, high-quality setting uh, and be prepared for kindergarten. So it's a win-win. It's such an important contribution, and it really speaks to the vitality of our uh, rural uh, cities and counties across Minnesota. This is a really core element of what uh, people need to stay in those communities. Did the center in Franklin receive any state assistance? This was done privately. There was, um, I believe, the, there there was some tax uh, exempt funding that the city used uh, to help pitch in. But what we have looked at from a statewide perspective is, you know, the state has does bonding every year, and a lot of times our bonding. Uh, in order for bonding to work, it has to be a public building. So a school district or a city or county uh, or a higher ed um, organization is going to get the money. We also, though, have the ability, and we, and we have uh, pursued this, to use general funds for bonding. And when you use general funds for bonding, um, you can then, anyone can build it. So it would serve this exact purpose. So, in short, what we're trying to do is create an environment where there are tax incentives, there are bonding incentives, and money available for communities to make this kind of a joint infrastructure investment to serve the child care development needs of all of their families, keep their workplaces stable, have their children succeed in school, and all of the investments, all of the studies have shown that the return on that investment is tremendous. So that's what we're, we're, why we're excited to highlight this particular effort, because we think it's a need more and more communities are facing, and it's a pathway for more and more communities to follow. Assistant Commissioner Koppel, do you suspect this decline in child care providers to continue? Yes, I, I do think it's a trend that's going to continue downward. The model of a family child care provider is a difficult model. Uh, it's hard to make a living. There's a lot of regulations around safety, as well as an increasing expectation that there'll be some type of an early childhood development uh, process followed that will give the child the preparation they need, whether it's reading or socializing, that there, I think, a growing expectation that child care needs to be a high-quality atmosphere. Thanks again to my guest, Minnesota Department of Human Services Assistant Commissioner Jim Koppel. Back to you, Scott. Thank you, Tasha. Minnesota Matters will return after this. Your surgery is over. Oh, it's over? What happened? Hi, Mr. Detweiler. Dr. Newman here. You have a new knee. It went great. You'll be up and around before you know it. And it's all because of you. Uh, what did I do? You were captain of Team Detweiler. You told us everything we needed to know. Your medical history, your allergies and prescription meds. You asked me tons of questions. What your options to surgery might be, what to expect during recovery. You even asked me how many knee replacements I've already done. Huh, I guess I did kind of run the whole operation, didn't I? Mr. Detweiler, we couldn't have done it without you. Patient safety. It takes a team. And patient involvement is key. A public service message from the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. With more tips at orthoinfo.org slash patient safety.
Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson. Swing a bouncing ball to God. He has it. Goes to Herbeck. And the Twins are baseball's world champions. The world champion, Minnesota Twins. That's the legendary Herb Carneal on the call as the Minnesota Twins beat the St. Louis Cardinals in seven games to win the 1987 World Series. This weekend, the Twins are hosting a 30th anniversary celebration of the Twins' historic win, bringing many of the players from that beloved team back for the festivities. I spoke with the key player on that 87 team, catcher Tim Laudner, about the experience and what it means to be celebrating it all these years later. Well, a couple of things come to mind. Number one, uh, and probably first and foremost, the fact that, geez, we're really old. Um, and, and, and that in itself is also hard to believe because, I don't feel, number one, I don't, I don't feel that old. Not to mention the fact that there are days when um, it seems like uh, the fact that on a, on a cool October night, Back in 1987, we became world champions. It seems like it was a lifetime or two ago. But then again, there are some memories that are extremely vivid, and, and, and there are certain things about it that feel like it just happened yesterday. So I think that we're looking forward to a, a really nice weekend. Sunday's going to come, Monday's going to come, and we'll go back to our mundane whatever it is that we do. But, but I think we're going to enjoy this weekend. You mentioned vivid memories. Is there one that comes to mind immediately that uh, seems like it was just yesterday? No, there's not. There's a, that's the thing. It's not just one. There's a there's a whole pile of things. There's a whole pile of of things that you know maybe went on during the course of that year and good streaks and bad streaks and winning at home and not doing so well on the road and uh, you know coming down and needing a, a win at home against the Kansas City Royals, which we got and. Then, uh, you know, going on the road, needing one more win, and when the wins on the road didn't come too easy for us, but we beat the Rangers down in Texas, became Western Division champs, and, and that was a great night. And then, to, you know, to carry it into the playoffs against the Detroit Tigers and to win a couple of ball games in our home ballpark, the Metrodome, then to, to get into the World Series and against the St. Louis Cardinals and win four games at home and become world champions of the, the, the night in uh, the Metrodome on a Monday night coming back from Detroit. That, I still talk about that and I still get emotional about that. It has a whole bunch of things about it that, that bring back really fond memories. So every kid that plays baseball has to fantasize about playing in the World Series. Do you remember those first few moments when you took the field for that first game in the World Series, and was did it live up to your expectations or surpass them? What kind of expectations would you have as a <laughs> as a you know a knucklehead kid growing up in Brooklyn Center, and you get an opportunity to go to the World Series? And I'm going to credit Tom Kelly uh, for a great deal of keeping us uh, grounded and focused. For seven games to be in somewhat contained into the clubhouse that we were in with the guys that we were in that clubhouse with and and trying to approach you know seven world series games just as we had approached the 162 games during the course of the season that we approached and one of the things that was probably his greatest one of his greatest moments was we win two against the st louis cardinals and then go down to St. Louis and lose three in a row, and we fall behind three games to two. And after that fifth game, Tom Kelly said, fellas, all I know is we're going home to play game six 
of the World Series, and I can't think of anything better than that. We're going to go home, and we're going to get to play Game 6 in a World Series. So let's get on the plane. Let's go home and have a good time. We have an off day. Then we'll get ready to play on whatever night of the week it was. But it's like, I mean, we were thrilled to be in a Game 6. Thrilled to have an opportunity to play against the St. Louis Cardinals in the Metrodome. And, yeah, I mean, I... I thought it was awesome what he did there. You had a lot of success in the Dome. It was the year of the Homer Hanky. What, what did you think of those then, and do you think anything differently about them now after all these years? You know, it's a, it's a great thing for the fans. It's a great, great way, I think, for the fans to connect. Uh, I, don't know, it, I don't know that it made a whole lot of difference to the players. Other than the fans, that you know, was the, I mean, the fans were magnificent. They were into it. They were loud. Uh, they came out in droves. Uh, by my, Herbeck and I have had discussions many a times, and the people that we've met in the Upper Midwest and the five-state area, and the times that we've traveled to South Dakota. You know, by our count, there was about uh, 400,000 people in the ballpark for Game Six and Seven, because everybody we met was there. Yeah, we were there. We were there. Well, we're up to about 400,000 now. All I know is that I've signed a whole pile of Homer Hanky since then. You also, I believe it was game two, you hit a home run in the World Series. What do you remember about that bat other than the ball going out? Lee, Lee, Tunnel, Lee Tunnel was the pitcher for the uh, St. Louis Cardinals, and he hit my bat really hard, and the ball went over the center field fence and went down to spring training 1988. We had an overnight trip down to Fort Lauderdale and then back up to, I think, Port St. Lucie where the Mets were. And uh, I caught against the Yankees, so I was not going to catch against the Mets the next day. But I meandered down to the bullpen in about the second inning. And we had called up a number of, of pitchers from AAA in case uh, our minor league facility in case we were to fall short of pitching against the Mets. And I went down there and the guy looked up at me. He says, I thought you were going to have a steak sandwich waiting here for me. And I said, what? He goes, yeah, I thought you were going to have a steak sandwich waiting for me. And I, I looked at him, he goes, Lee Tunnel. I go, nice to meet you, Lee. How are you? <laughs> so tell me, game seven, two outs in the bottom of the ninth, you're behind the plate. What do you remember about how you felt when it was that close? Well, and that's, you know, for me, in that situation, it, you, you find yourself being very focused on doing what you have to do to get your pitcher to do what he's done all year long and that is to help him close out a game and what I mean by that is that the last thing that you want to do is think about the end result when you if when you start to do that you get ahead you get ahead of yourself and you don't want to get ahead of yourself you want to stay patient and do the things that you've been doing so if you're going to set up um, a hitter like either Vince Coleman or Willie McGee or Tommy Herr, you want to stay on the patterns that you've been on and, or, or, or deviate from the patterns that you've been on so that you're, you're doing your best to try and set them up and get them out without getting ahead of yourself. And that's, that's the key. I don't think that's any... That's what I remember. You don't get to celebrate until it's over. And the celebration is what I was going to talk about next. I don't think I'll ever forget. I was watching home with my parents. I was in high school at the time. I'll, I'll never forget the scene, but I was watching it again the other night, and you are at the bottom of that celebration pile. What do you remember about that? My face was as close to Jeff Reardon's face as I hope it ever gets. <laughs> <laughs> just, you know, just elation. And 
Uh, it's, a, it's, it's very hard to, to comprehend. It's very hard to put into words. It's uh, something that you you know you think is maybe never happened, never going to happen to you. Um, but it did, and so we celebrated, and we enjoyed, and we um, rejoiced, and we hugged one another. And you know what? Maybe we'll do the same this weekend. Do you get emotional when you get together with those guys? Depends. Depends. Uh, certain guys. There's been a lot of water over the dam, and there's a, there's a, there's believe it or not, a human element that's that's involved, and there've been things that have, that have not been published, other things that have been published about what's gone on in certain people's lives, and and uh, the one thing that I that I was asked recently was how did it change you, and I said my answer to that was I don't think it changed any one of us. I think that every one of us woke up the same way on Monday morning that we did the Sunday morning before. Well, what did change and changed immensely was other people's perception about who or what we are or what we were. And, and that's okay, uh, but I don't think Ken Herbeck woke up any different on Monday than he did on Sunday. And I don't think Dan Gladden woke up any different on Monday than he did on Sunday, and I don't think Gary Gaetti and Tommy Bernanski and Frankie Viola and Bert Blylevin are the same people today that they were the Sunday morning before we won Game 7 of the 1987 World Series. And But other people's perception about who we are, yeah, that changed a little bit, and, and, and that's, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, however, you know, there are still human elements to all of us. Thanks again to my guest, Tim Laudner, and thanks to the 1987 Twins for the great memories. That's going to do it for this week. Please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station.